0: We turn in God's word this evening to Galatians chapter 2. We begin reading at verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision." And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, "'Livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, "'why compelest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? "'We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles,' "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified." But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Thus far, we read God's holy word. Our text is verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I But Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Beloved, in Galatians chapter 2, we have a public confrontation between two apostles. The apostle Paul withstands the apostle Peter to his face. And that's because Peter was guilty of what Galatians 2 calls dissimulation or dissembling. And that word means hypocrisy. And here is what the hypocrisy was. When Peter was among Gentile believers in the church at Antioch, he willingly and gladly ate with them. And then certain Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem. And Peter, seeing these Jewish Christians and worrying that they might be not too pleased with him because he was eating with Gentiles, he withdraws himself and goes and sits with the Gentiles, or rather goes and sits with the Jews and not with the Gentiles. And Peter behaved this way out of fear. The fear of man brought a snare. And even worse, Peter's behavior began to influence others in the church. The other Jewish believers, even Barnabas, followed Peter's example. Verse 13 And the other Jews dissembled or acted hypocritically likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation or with their hypocrisy. And Paul confronts Peter. Paul views this situation not merely as bad manners, But he views this as a gospel issue. Verse 14, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said. And how is this then a gospel issue? Because, beloved, the gospel says it does not matter in the church if you are a Jew or a Gentile. It is not necessary to keep the law, including all of those Old Testament Jewish laws, food laws and the like, laws concerning separation of the Jews from the Gentiles. It's not necessary to keep those laws and rules to be saved and justified. And Peter and Barnabas with him, And the Jewish Christians with him, they claimed to believe the gospel, and yet they're not walking according to the truth of the gospel. Their behavior does not match their theology, their behavior does not match what they believe. And Paul views this as shocking behavior in the church of Jesus Christ. Such behavior, says the apostle, must be rebuked, and so Paul rebukes Peter. And more than that, Paul applies and explains the gospel to Peter and to Barnabas and to the Jewish Christians and to the Gentile Christians in Antioch and also to us. He explains that gospel in terms of justification by faith alone without works. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And that expression, the faith of Jesus Christ, is faith of which Jesus Christ is the object. We might say, by faith in jesus christ and again verse 16 we have believed in jesus christ that we might be justified by the faith of christ and not by the works of the law and then paul applies this truth to that situation he says to peter as it were peter you confess that justification is by faith alone without works and you're right but, Peter, your acting, your behavior tells me that you believe rather that your justification depends on your works. And, of course, that would be against the gospel. Otherwise, Peter, why are you living as if you were still living under the law for justification and not sitting with your fellow believers in the church who happen To be Gentiles. And why are you forcing, Peter, why are you forcing the Gentiles to live as if they were under the law for justification by telling them they must keep the Old Testament laws if they're going to have fellowship with you, Peter? And in response to all of this, Paul makes his own personal confession. He applies it to himself, first of all. Verse 19, I, through the law... I, through the law, am dead to the law, or I have died to the law, that I might live unto God. And Paul means this, my relationship to the law has changed. I live in a certain way because of that because of that changed relationship to the law. Peter on the other hand is living as if he was not dead to the law, as if he did not have a new relationship to the law. Peter is living here as if he were still under the law, still under the law for justification, as if the law was the means of his salvation. And thus He's living in a hypocritical manner. He's living contrary to his own confession. And Paul sees the need to rebuke him. Paul, though, as a believer, lives a different kind of life. Not life under the law for salvation, but a life of faith thus he says the life that i now live in the flesh i live by the faith of the son of god that's the new life that paul lives and that's the life that peter ought also to be living and that's the subject, beloved, of our sermon this evening, living by the faith of the Son of God, living by the faith of the Son of God. Notice first the explanation for this, second the meaning of this, and third the motivation for This. This is, beloved, a very beautiful text, but it is also a complicated or even confusing text. If you read it carefully, two things will strike you. First, the personal confession of the Apostle Paul, and second, the prevalence of the idea of living or life. Read the text again and take note of those two things. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth. In me, and the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I count there eight personal references to the apostle, I or me, and five references to the idea of life or living. But the complicated aspect of the text is this, who lives? Who lives? There are, you'll notice, two individuals mentioned in the text who are described as Living. On the one hand, the Apostle Paul lives. Nevertheless, he says, I live. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul does not live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So the Apostle lives and yet he also does not live. Christ lives in him. How do we understand such language, which is somewhat confusing, mysterious, and yet wonderful? How do we understand such language? Well, appealing to this text, some have fallen into the error of mysticism. Mysticism is the error of confusing the believer's personality or person with Christ's personality or person so that those two personalities or persons are merged into one. And the mystic will will appeal to this text by emphasizing those words, Yet not I but Christ liveth in me. You might meet someone who has a mystical view of this text, and they'll say something like this, I do not believe Christ believes in me, through me, for me, or instead of me. And I do not repent Christ repents in me and through me and for me and instead of me. And I do not perform good works, but Christ performs those good works in me and through me and for me and instead of me. That's mysticism. That's confusing Christ's personality or person with our personality or person. Person and extreme mysticism leads to the idea that the believer himself is Christ, not merely that the believer lives out of Christ, or that the believer is in Christ, or that the believer enjoys union with Christ, all of which things, of course, are true, but that the believer is Christ. And then the extreme mystic will say, I am Christ, and Christ is me. Of course, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, Christ, Christ works in me by his Holy Spirit so that I believe, so that I repent, so that I perform good works. But mysticism says, I do nothing. Christ does everything in me, through me, for me, and instead of me. And thus, mysticism is an error, an extreme and serious error. Mysticism leads to, it must lead to, passivity. And passivity simply means doing nothing. It must lead to passivity because if I do not live but Christ lives in me and through me and for me and instead of me, then I do not do anything. Then I can live as I please while Christ does things in me without any effort on my part or any conscious activity of mine. And that's the extreme position Taken by some on this text. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. But we still haven't answered the question. Who lives? Does the apostle Paul live or does Christ live? The key to understanding this text, beloved, is to see that Paul is speaking here of himself in two ways, who he was and who he now is. Paul is here describing a transformation in his life which is so radical so fundamental that we could almost say that Paul is a new person. I say almost because, strictly speaking, we do not become a new person when we are converted. We become new creatures. We have a new heart. We have a new life. We have a new man, but we are not new persons. So Paul is speaking of himself in two senses. First of all, there is the old Paul. The old Paul is Saul of Tarsus. The old Paul is the unbeliever, the Jew, the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church the one who hated Jesus Christ. That old Paul trusted in the law. He trusted in his obedience to the law for his salvation and especially for his justification before God. The old Paul is gone. The old Paul is gone. The old Paul died. The old Paul died on the Damascus Road when Jesus appeared to him, when Jesus gave him life, and when he was converted. He says so in verse 19. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, or literally, I, through the law, died to the law. Saul of Tarsus died to the law. And when that happened, the law lost its power to condemn him, lost its power to curse him, lost its power to damn him, lost its power to demand from him perfect obedience for his justification. That happened because Christ satisfied all of the demands of the law on Paul's behalf, and on our behalf. And so the old Paul, Saul of Tarsus, died. The new Paul is Paul the believer, Paul the Christian, Paul the apostle, Paul the member of the church, Paul the lover of Christ and his church. Now we speak of two Pauls, as if we're speaking of two persons, but really it's one person, the same person died and now lives, the same person, and yet the transformation is so great that Paul can speak of himself as if he were an entirely new person. Notice in verse 19, the personal pronoun I. For I, through the law, am dead or died to the law, that or so that I might live unto God. And so here is one who was under the law. He then died to that law. And that same person now is living unto God, the new Paul. The new Paul lives unto God. The new Paul lives in devotion to God. The new Paul lives to the glory of God. And notice, too, there are two words in the text, beginning with N, now and not. The word now in the phrase, the life which I now live, that. Word now provides a contrast between the life of the old and the life of the new. There was a then, a back then, I used to do this, I used to live this way, and then there's a now, here's what I am now, here's how I live now, and then there's a not in verse 20, yet not I, and that not is literally no longer or not anymore. Nevertheless, I live, yet no longer I. Or, nevertheless, I live, yet no more I. The old I, the old Paul, the old Saul of Tarsus, no longer lives, he lives no more, he died, and the new I, the new Paul, he now lives. And that language may be somewhat confusing to us, unusual perhaps, but that's the language used elsewhere in Scripture. For example, Romans 6, verse 6, the apostle writes this. Romans 6, verse 6, knowing this that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, or that we might no longer serve sin. Now apply that truth, beloved, to yourself. The old you, the unregenerate, Unbelieving, impenitent, fruitless you. The old you is no more. The old you has died. The new you, the born again, regenerate, believing, penitent, obedient you. The new you lives you are as the apostle says else says elsewhere a new creature in christ jesus it is almost as if you are a new person and that's why you can say with the apostle here nevertheless i live yet not i or yet no longer i That's the transformation. The explanation for this transformation from the old Paul to the new Paul is Paul's death to the law. We looked at that already, Paul's death to the law, and Paul's crucifixion with Christ. For I, through the law, am dead, or died, to the law, that I might live unto God, I am crucified with Christ. Christ was crucified. We know and confess that truth. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess that he was crucified, dead, and buried which means that Christ was crucified for us. God's wrath came upon Christ. God's curse came upon Christ for us. His death on the cross accomplished our salvation. He died a substitutionary sacrificial atoning death for us. Christ was crucified for us. That's clear. We understand that. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says something else. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. And that means that what happened to Jesus Christ, namely his crucifixion, also happened to me. Because Christ is the head of his people, therefore what happened to Christ happened to his people. And therefore his people can say, and we can say, I am crucified with Christ. Here's the truth, beloved, of union with Christ, sometimes called the mystical union, not mysticism, but the mystical union. And you see that in the Bible, often in the New Testament epistles, when the apostles speak of being in Christ, or with Christ, or together with Christ. Romans 6 is an example of this. Romans 6, 3 through 6 says this, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death, therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So there is this union that the members of Christ have with the head so that the head Christ was crucified and the body was also crucified with him. And that verb crucified with is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense describes a completed action in the past which has ongoing effects into the present. Translated in English, the perfect tense is, I have been crucified with Christ. If I said to you, I have been bitten by a serpent a snake. I have been bitten by a serpent. I mean, with the perfect tense, I mean that a serpent bit me in the past, and I'm still feeling the effects of its bite in the present. It's a bad thing, of course, to be bitten by a serpent. But if I speak I have been crucified with Christ, which is a wonderful truth of our salvation. I mean, I was crucified with Christ in the past, and I am enjoying the effects of that, the benefits of that, in the present. I have been crucified with Christ. And so Paul's crucifixion with Christ has fundamentally and permanently changed who he is. The old Paul was crucified. The old Paul died. The old Paul was buried with Christ. And that's true also of us, the old me the old me, the unregenerate, unbelieving, impenitent, fruitless me, was crucified with Christ, was buried with Christ, and that is fundamental, permanent changes for me in the present. I have been crucified with Christ, so that in a certain sense, I no longer live. The old me no longer lives. This, too, is the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 16, question and answer 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross Answer, that by virtue thereof, or by the power of that death on the cross, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him, Romans 6, 6, so that the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So, in summary, Paul died to the law. And as he writes these words, he remains dead to that law. And that happened to him when he was crucified with Christ. And so Paul says here, in effect, to Peter, Peter, this is also true of you. You also died to the law. You also have been crucified with Christ. Why then are you living as if you have not been crucified with Christ? Why then are you living as if you had not died to the law? Understand the truth, Peter, and live out of that truth and walk according to the truth of the gospel. We've seen then, so far, what happened to the old Paul. He was crucified with Christ. He died to the law. But that's not the end of Paul, of course, because he goes on to say, Nevertheless, I live. I live. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So here Paul presupposes, doesn't say it explicitly, but Paul presupposes that he is also risen again with Christ. If Christ died and was buried and then Christ rose again and we are in him, then We died, we were buried, and then we rose again with him or in him. And that's the teaching, for example, of Romans chapter 6, where Paul teaches that explicitly. The point is, in Christ now, as new creatures although not new persons, as new creatures, we have a new life. And that life is called the life of Christ, or the life that comes to us by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says about that life, he lives it in the flesh. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live. That word flesh has different meanings according to the context, but the fundamental meaning of flesh in the Bible is human nature. We speak of flesh and blood. And that flesh can be from various perspectives. Sometimes it's the perspective of frailty and weakness. All flesh is as grass, for example, The idea there is of its frailty and weakness. In other places, flesh is spoken of in terms of its sinfulness and corruption. But here the idea is simply the ordinary human life that we live in this world with all of its common infirmities. Paul says, I have a new life. The old me died. I'm living this new life. I'm not living this new life yet in heavenly glory. I'm living this new life in the flesh. And that life then is the normal everyday life of getting up in the morning and going to work or to school or to play, of caring for a family, of eating, drinking, and then going to sleep It's the Christian life of living unto God, of prayer, of reading God's word, of loving God and the neighbor, of serving others, of doing good works. It is life lived in the flesh. And verse 19 says, For I through the law am dead to the law. That I might live unto God. It's a life lived in the flesh unto God to the glory of God. Not then a life lived according to or after the flesh. That also is a kind of life mentioned in Scripture. Paul speaks of that kind of life. He calls it a life according to or after the flesh. Romans 8, 5, and 6, "...they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace." A life lived according to or after the flesh is the life of wickedness, a sinful, self-serving life, the life not of the Christian, but the life of the unbeliever. That's the life that Paul used to live. Yes, he was moral before his conversion, yet he lived according to the flesh, Because it was a life of pride, a life of self-righteousness, a life of seeking his salvation in his obedience to the commandments of God. It was a life after or according to the flesh. And then Paul died to the law. He ceased. He ceased living according to or after the flesh and began to live a new life, in the flesh. And that's why, because we have died to a certain way of living, and we're now alive to a new way of living, that's why we cannot continue to live an ungodly life. We may not, and we cannot. Romans 6 verse 2 speaks of the believer as being dead to sin. Not dead in sin. The unbeliever is dead in sin, but the believer is dead to sin. So that sin no longer has the power over the believer that it used to have. Because the believer is now under the power of God's grace. We have this new life, which is the life of one who died to the law, the life of one who has been crucified with Christ, one who has been resurrected with Christ. We have this new life, says the apostle, by the faith of the Son of God. That's why Paul writes, Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In what sense then does Christ live in me? Well, not this that Paul's personality has merged with Christ's personality so that Christ's personality has swallowed up Paul's personality and therefore Paul no longer exists. That's, I said earlier, mysticism. That's to be merged into or assimilated into Jesus Christ. Not that, but rather union with Christ the idea is Christ lives in me means that Christ is in me by his holy spirit he quickens me he works in me he sanctifies me and the result of that work in me by the holy spirit is that i live unto god That's what the Bible means when it says that Christ lives in us or Christ dwells in us, not as if we are possessed by Christ in a mystical, weird kind of way, but that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Here's Romans 8, 9, and 10. Listen very carefully to Romans 8, 9, and 10. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Notice, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Notice, that the Spirit of Christ is equivalent to the Spirit of God. So, the Spirit of God dwells in you means the same thing as the Spirit of Christ is in you. And then he goes on to say, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of Righteousness, In other words, the dwelling of the Spirit of Christ in us or the dwelling of the Spirit of God in us is the same thing as the dwelling of Christ himself in us. Christ abiding in us is the Spirit's abiding in us. And the result of that then is that we live out of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith because we are united to Christ by the Spirit and by faith, then, we receive Christ, we embrace and appropriate Christ, and we live out of him and thus the apostle writes, and the life which I now live, this new life, not the old life, but this new life, the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, or I live by faith in the Son." of God. Christ, then, is the source of our life. Christ is the power of our life. Without Christ, we can do nothing. That's why Peter and Barnabas and the Jewish Christians were so foolish in Galatians chapter 2. They were saying by their behavior, if not by their doctrine, by their behavior, that the source and power of their life was not Christ, but was the law and the keeping of the law for salvation. And thus Paul rebukes Peter and rebukes the others who were following after this bad example of Peter and views this hypocritical behavior of Peter as a gospel issue. He says, as it were, to Peter, I, with all Christians, died to the law, And I, with all Christians, live unto God. And I, with all Christians, have been crucified with Christ. And I, with all Christians, live not by the law, not by my own strength, but by faith in Christ as I derive grace and power and strength from him. And Peter, why are you pretending to live differently from that? Then Paul adds something at the end of the text to reveal his motivation in living a holy life of devotion to God. Why is he now living a life no longer unto himself, but unto this God who loved him? Why? Well, the law will not provide such a motivation, but the gospel will. The gospel will and the gospel does. Here's who the Son of God is, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You'll notice that the apostle here does not call Jesus simply Jesus or Jesus Christ, but calls him the Son of God. And by calling him the Son of God, he's emphasizing his divinity. The Son of God is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal, only begotten Son of God. Here is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Not a mere man like I am, says the apostle, not a mere man, but God himself, God in the flesh. And this Son of God, what did this Son of God do? Well, Paul has his eye upon the cross. He has his eye of faith upon Calvary. And he says, here is what this Son of God did. Here is how this Son of God displayed his love. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. This Jesus Christ... This Son of God, He loved me. He was moved by deep affection for me and delight in me. He loved me. He sought my welfare. He sought my good. Ultimately, He sought my salvation, and He drew near to me to establish a bond with me. That's what love is in the Bible. He loved me, and He gave Himself for me. He gave himself for me. He gave himself to suffering. He gave himself to humiliation. He gave himself to shame and to death in order to purchase me from death, the devil and hell, to pay for my sin, to accomplish all of my salvation. This Jesus, this Son of God, he loved me and he gave himself for me. And because he gave himself for me, and because I am crucified with him, and I have a new life in him, I have died to the law. And I live by faith in him. I live unto God. Amen. Our Father in heaven, We thank Thee for the glorious gospel of Thy Son, that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, loved us and gave Himself for us. We thank Thee, O Father, that we have been transformed by that grace so that we have died to the law, we have been crucified with Jesus Christ, And now we live a new life. We live a new life by faith in that same Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Forgive us, O Father, when we try to live that old life. We try to go back to the old way of sin and misery, Forgive us, O Father, when we wallow in our own sins and lusts and evil desires, and teach us to walk in thy ways and to glorify thee in all things. For Christ's sake, amen.